Revolution Show brought to you by SASDOC, the conference to turn your SAS up to 11. On this week's episode of the SAS Revolution Show, I take you back to one of the most well received fireside chats during SASDOC 17. Early in the morning of the second day of the conference, Christoph Jans, managing partner of Point Nine Capital, sat down for coffee with Des Trainer, co founder, chief strategy officer, and VP of marketing of Intercom. They talk product management and the importance of saying no to feature requests, as well as marketing and the channels that have been the most beneficial to Intercom. Listen on to hear what are the acid test questions every product manager should ask, who are the voices to listen to for informing the product roadmap, how to explain a no to customers, how Intercom built and sustained its content marketing so well, and how seven years on, the company still has not exhausted any of their early marketing channels. Good morning. Good morning, Christoph. How are you? Good. How about you? Wonderful. You had a busy week. Just flew in from Vancouver, is that right? Vancouver, yeah. Intercom is on world tour and we're traveling around. And Vancouver to Dublin is actually not a short flight. So yeah. I apologize if I'm jet-lagged. How's everyone out there? Are we awake? <laughs> cool. I can't see you, so I'll just have to assume that's the case. Um, how are you, Christoph? Good, good, good. And well, thanks for, for, for taking some time out of your busy schedule, Des. And I, I think... Most of you, maybe all of you, uh, know, know you and know Intercom, but just in case somebody um, has been living under a rock for the last couple of years, maybe you can give a very brief introduction to what Intercom does in maybe just 30 seconds. Certainly. Intercom is a customer communication platform that lets internet businesses talk to customers and customers talk to internet businesses. Our mission is to make internet business personal. We're six years old, 400 people, and we have a big office here in Dublin, a big office in San Francisco and we're doing well. Great. Um, <laughs> so the topic for uh, today is the uh, highs and lows in um, product and marketing. I, I think you originally wanted to call it like the, the highs and the, and the fuck-ups in product and marketing, but I think Alex preferred a slightly more radio-friendly title. <laughs> I, I actually anyway, think the inverse of that is actually true. I think Alex's proposal was to call it is the that focus true? of product okay. marketing, and uh, my proposal was to keep it more radio-friendly. Yeah. All right, okay. We, we've, already, we've already fucked that anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so I'll ask you a bunch of questions, but you can also submit your questions using slido.com. Um, hashtag SaaStock, and I think if you submit your questions, I'll be able to see them here and over there, so we'll, we'll try to um, pick up some of your questions. Um, uh, Des, I read in one of your blog posts and also in your, your ebook, which is highly recommended, by the way, Intercom on Product Management, which you can download for free, you can right. Google it, um, that no is the most important word in the vocabulary of a product manager. And I think this would be maybe a good start if you explain a little bit uh, uh, what you mean by this, because I think if you um, uh, comply, or if, if you listen to that or not, that probably um, can lead to, to a high or low. So maybe if you uh, explain a bit what you, what you mean by that. Yeah. Uh, I guess I, when I wrote that post, and I, I still feel the same way, like uh, you, one thing that's just eternally true in software is like you've more feature requests and you have time you have a limited window of opportunity in which your product can actually succeed you know every product is kind of there's a sliding window of time in which it's relevant uh, you know fax machines had like a maybe 50 70 year period where they're a billion dollar industry but they're totally gone now i think a lot of our ideas and a lot of our software out there only makes sense in these sliding windows of time and the reason I encourage you to say no is that it has to be the default response to everything, which makes it kind of feel kind of negative. 
but it has to be your default response. You will always, always find a great, there's always at least one reason to build something, like the engagement looks good, or it's pretty easy, or we can do it in 10 minutes, or all our customers want it, or some of our customers want it, sales want it, uh, it's an easy complement to this, it's a one-click integration. Like, it's so easy to find a reason to build any given feature that, you know, if that's your decision mechanism, you're gonna end up with like a pretty, like, bloated, and I mean this in a lot of different ways, but I've bloated product, mostly in the sense of really, really broad, rambling, very hard to market, and very hard to maintain. So, what, when I say that product strategy and product management is about saying no, I just mean that, like, you know, you get, realistically, if you're a team of 10, 20, 30 engineers, you get to say yes to probably, like, 10 or 15 things a year. So, you have to say no, and I specifically mean no, and not, not now, or not, uh, not later, or something like that. Uh, because if you sort of let things, like if you ask me for a feature in Intercom today and I say, you know what, Christoph, we've got a lot going on right now, but I'll talk to the team and we'll get that for next yeah. quarter. If you let that be the sort of normal way in which your roadmap fills up, mm. you have the exact same problem. You're just planning it. You know, you're almost planning to build bullshit in a sense. Uh, mm. So like, I think it really has to be no as default. And then, uh, and then like, you, know, you have to have such sort of sharp guardrails that let very few features in. And the ones that get in have to like meet this sort of acid test. Uh, and uh, I, I wrote a follow-on piece to that called "Rarely Say Yes to yep. Feature Requests." And there's like a load of different questions. Like, but the obvious ones as to like whether or not you should build it is like, does it align with your vision? Is it like, is it what you set out to build in the first place? Uh, will the majority of your customers benefit from this engagement? Like, from engaging with this feature? Can you profit from that engagement? I often make the point that it would be, it's e you, if you add Tetris to your product tomorrow, all your users will love it, because everyone fucking loves Tetris, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, you can't profit off that engagement. Yeah. So, like, so it is important that you're actually adding value, not just taking time. And I think a lot of like, social tools make that mistake. They're like, oh, we've captured extra clicks or whatever, but it's like, yeah. not valuable ones. You know? yeah. so, uh, and then, can we maintain it? Can we support it? Uh, you know, is this a tip of the iceberg thing? Will this pull our marketing off course, where you have to say, we're ticket tracking, but we also have this dope authoring tool. You, know, you, you kind of need to make sure that, that you can align everything around it. You should be able to draw a sort of single string between your, your company mission, your product, the features you include and the features you exclude, such that in, in a great place, users can kind of generally guess what you do and won't do. So you know your product's getting more and more refined when people stop giving you pathological feature requests. Yeah, um, whereas yeah. early on, most of the feature requests you get are kind of like, I actually love your analytics tool, but what I really, what I really would love is an email tool. And you're like, yeah. why the fuck are you telling me? Yeah. You know, but like, uh, that's because you, your product definition isn't so sharp. So yeah. that's kind of how I yeah. think it's important. I think this is a very typical situation, especially early on when you don't have, basically when you're maybe pre-product market fit or around finding product market fit, that every single prospect that you talk to requests something else, mm -hmm. right? Or maybe you cover 50% of what they want, but you just, there is not enough overlap. So in how, how would you recommend to, to make these trade-offs? If everybody wants something different and then you maybe have your, your own product vision, is it, which is... Yeah. Even a bit different from that, like, do you, I, I guess it shouldn't be a de democratic choice, uh, like, but, uh, to what extent do you think should founders or product managers let themselves be influenced by, by all the stuff and feature requests yeah. and, that come in? I think it's, it's more important early on to, to follow your own intuition, because the market signal you get is going to be quite anecdotal and quite small, like, it, it's rare you launch and you get, like, 100,000 feature requests, because... 
Jesus said, you're not going to have a thousand users, let alone like a hundred thousand feature requests. So I think you really have to kind of rely first and foremost in the embryonic stages of your product. You have to rely on like, why did I sit down to start this thing? Why did I incorporate? Why did I sign those documents? Why did I register that domain? What is the actual burning mission here? And I think that needs to guide you a lot early on. But like as you add... Uh, the waves of additional complexity. This looks like you're going to hire a team. Your team are going to be the people closest to your product. They're going to have some very sharp ideas. You need to let them in, otherwise they're just going to quit. Uh, you're going to probably have customers. Your customers are going to have some requests or mm. things that they want to complete their workflow. So the thing I'd encourage everyone to do is have a philosophy about how you make those decisions at that sort of abstract level. So. So for, for Intercom, we currently have, I think, seven inputs into our roadmap. We have like uh, the voice of sales, which is basically what are we hearing from potential new customers as to reasons they buy or don't buy. We have the voice of our, our customer voice report, which is what our research team produces. That is like the top ten of like, here's the most common things we're literally hearing. We have like uh, features to help us scale. So like uh, we know that we're getting bigger and we need to get stay fast and all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. So what features are necessary there? We have our own ideas, which is just what cool shit is no one asking for, but we think it'd be pretty dope if we could do it. We need to make space for that in the roadmap too. Now, the, like, and there's a few more, and we have a whole post on this. But the important thing I'd say is like it's a bad outcome if you're like an expense tracking app mm -hmm. and you have to. Uh, have a debate between like should we build single sign-on email reports or should we build a, a social integration right uh, that's not a useful debate because you can make arguments for or against any one of those mm. a useful debate is are we in this quarter or in this cycle are we following the voice of the customer are we trying to innovate with new ideas or are we trying to solve current customer problems yeah. And that's the actual meaningful argument to have. Like, how are we going to allocate our team this, this quarter? Are we trying to, we're trying to build, do new shit. Okay, well then let's not go and carbon copy other people's features. Let's go and do this, you know. So I think that's a much meatier debate to have. Don, as I said, trying to debate the merits of two totally, you know, different features, each of which, have, each of which will definitely have their own merits, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there is one, um, there's a, a good question from a gentleman called Anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, he asks, I know him. <laughs> you know him? Yes. Yeah, he asked two yeah. questions. Let's not assume uh, it's a... Yeah. Uh, and he asked, when product says no, the, the customer success or sales teams have to explain that no to customers. Yeah. How do you suggest they approach that conversation? So, <clears throat> this is the challenge, right? And actually, uh, one of our, well, two of our customer support uh, representatives are on the tour giving a talk on this exact mm -hmm. topic. The challenge is, you have to explain what, what Intercom is, in our case, or what your product is, what mission you're on, uh, why, uh, like, why this feature isn't being prioritized right now. And then you can, of course, sort of say things like, you know, look, that's totally within our wheelhouse, but we've a limited amount of, amount of uh, people, limited amount of engineers, designers. Uh, I'm telling you we will solve that, but I can't guarantee you a time frame. Uh, that's one option. But like in general, it, it depends on the type of feature request. If it's a hard no, you just have to give the hard no and explain that, hey, like, I'm sorry you think that's important, but it's, like, it's not something we're going to do. Like, uh, we get asked mm. for, like, where is your like, funnel visualization mm. feature? Mm. And we're like, we're not going to build that in any time frame that we can con uh, conceive for the, for the company. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and people are like, what? holy shit, why not? You have all that data. And we're like, mm. totally mm. get it, totally get it. We're not going to build it. Um, yeah. The other side of it is when it's like, you're pretty sure we are going to build it. And a better example of this is like, are you going to fix this bug? Yeah, or yeah, when is this yeah. thing going to get faster or whatever? Uh, and in those cases, it's more, you have to kind of, you know, 
give them enough commitment such that they understand that you're not being idiotic here. As in, like, yeah. hey, look, we totally get it. I understand you need to be able to merge users. Yeah. It's a complex problem. Um, there's a lot of implications we, uh, we haven't considered yet. Um, so it's definitely something we're going to solve, but I can't guarantee you we're going to solve in the next six weeks. Yeah. One thing related to this for what's worth is we really only tend to like plan concrete roadmaps in like six-week cycles. Yeah. Um, so, like, so that kind of gives us the freedom to uh, be a little bit agile mm. um, it, you know, versus, say, saying, well, we have our year, we have our 2018 roadmap and it's not on yeah. it. You know? yeah. okay. And I think like, um, like saying no to customer requests all the time, and as you mentioned, you have to do it all the time, um, I think it requires a pretty high degree of confidence that you actually know what you want to build. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering, like, how can a founder develop that, that confidence and that conviction that this is the product roadmap? Do you think that in order to have that level of conviction and knowledge, you have to come from the industry and you have to have experienced the problem in order to know that this is the solution? Um, because let, let's say I, I just want to start a SaaS company, I look at a couple of industries and try to come up with a solution. Then in that case, I guess any customer who tells me this is a problem yeah. probably knows more about yeah. it than I do, right? So, yeah. does it mean you have to come from a I from think, a specific domain? I think it massively helps. Uh, it's, you know, we tend to like pretend that, like you know the world is your oyster and you can do whatever you want. But the reality is, like, if me and you both start a customer communications platform product, I probably know more about it. And that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah. Um, and I think if you don't have first-hand experience of a product. It's not impossible, or sorry, I have a problem. Um, it's not impossible to build a successful solution, but the amount of extra scaffolding you have to do to get you the insight that somebody else is going to get for free having experienced the problem firsthand is immense. And it's so immense that you're at a significant disadvantage. And then secondly, so that's just, you know, you've, you basically have no intuition in that world, right? Like, and then secondly, you need to be really good at parsing customer feedback and feature requests, and you need to have like, great empathy for other people's problems, which is totally possible, but it's just, again, it's an extra body of research you have to do. So like, I think um, I'm wary as like, you know, I, either as an investor or as somebody who's like, trying to help other companies succeed or whatever, I'm always wary of people uh, who are trying to solve a problem that they heard about yeah. or, that, or that their old company kind of had, yeah. but they haven't really directly experienced themselves. Because yeah. uh, I just think every, like, the probability of error is so high and the amount of steps you need to make correctly in order to yeah. get traction is so uh, yeah. significant that it's just it's a low probability march. Yeah, you know? yeah that makes sense. All right. Um, let's switch topics a little yeah. bit, talk a bit about marketing. Sure. Um, can you share some highs and, and lows of what you have experienced at, at Intercom? Yeah, uh, so the background to like why I'm talking about product and marketing, I guess, is like two years ago, I, worked, I, I moved full-time to work on marketing at Intercom, mm -hmm. and, uh, and basically knowing nothing about Intercom, like you know, classic sort of arrogance of, oh, I'm sure I'll fucking figure it out. Uh, I didn't. <laughs> um, the, uh, the biggest the sort of lesson you could call it a low, uh, has been kind of how, how out of touch in general product folks are with actually the, the complexity, depth, and intellectual integrity that actually exists within marketing. I think we tend to think like naively about marketing as being buying ads and bullshit like that, 
when it's actually so so influential and when you do it properly, it, it has you know trajectory defining outcomes. Um, to give you one example, like we talk about marketing, marketing in, in intercom is at least seven different teams from like brand design, communications, demand generation, content marketing, events, etc. Right? Uh, that's like so. Marketing isn't one team; it's a whole set of teams, each of which their own activities and their own ways to grow intercom in the short and in the long term. And you have to kind of have a reasonable mastery of all of those tactics uh, and, and each of the team strategies. And I think a lot of people just don't get that. Um, so one of the like, I guess a few lows were like one. When we hired our first product marketer, it was like three, three and a half years ago. Um, and I think once we realized the value that uh, Matt uh, was delivering, it became quite obvious that we kind of needed a Matt for the previous two years too. And there was definitely a big opportunity missed there for our, our own success to like have started this earlier and have mm-hmm. kind of paid marketing honestly more respect earlier. Um, the second big realization was that like, it's not just product marketing, which is basically people who are in charge of what the thing looks like and, and how we package it and present it to the world. Uh, it's all the other activities that we weren't doing as well. Uh, the, and I, I guess like, there were the two sort of lows. The highs for me have been like, the success of, say, our content marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we've, we invested in content marketing from the very start. I would say like, we were always kind of marketing intercom, but maybe just not under an official marketing umbrella. Uh, but content marketing, I mean... like. As a show of hands, who here has read our blog, for example? Mm-hmm. Like, so, like that's, you know, that has been like a long process. That blog is like six and a half years old, um, nearly seven. And, uh, and it's, you know, there's been a compound interest return on that over the years. And it's been yeah. really, really important uh, to everything. It's, it's how we hire, it's how we get to attract attention, et cetera. I think like, they're the things where I kind of, like, with the benefit of hindsight, at the time, it felt weird to go into the office and bang out posts about product management when we weren't selling a product management app. Yep. Um, today, it's, it's quite clear that the value was there, but you mm. can really only see it in hindsight properly. Whereas at the time, I was like, what's the least, what's, what, what can I do that will get us any attention for Intercom? Any attention, we'll mm-hmm. take it. You know? uh, and uh, so I think, like, you know, the, the one thing I think we got right is that sort of long-term uh, long-term look at content marketing. We were never going to do like seven top tips to grow your SaaS app or whatever. Right? Mm. It was always going to be something that had a little bit more depth to it, and uh, and that has paid back over the this sort of course of time. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it true that like the majority of your content is geared towards product managers and around product topics, despite the fact that you would think that maybe customer success or customer yeah. support is actually your your core. Audience, I um, let me think. So, like initially, yes, yeah. right. That's definitely true. Initially, I was writing it. I was working on product. All of my thoughts were product. So I was like, right, write about the thing you fucking know about. You don't know anything about customer support or marketing or sales or customer success or any of that sort of stuff. So that's what I used to do. Uh, I think these days we're a lot more grown up. So these days we have like pillars of the blog. So we have we have marketing as a pillar, and we have mm. books on marketing. We have customer support as a pillar, and we have books on, on customer support. So I think mm. we've definitely. Um, we went from the blog being like kind of whatever you can think about is great. We also used to talk about design a lot and stuff like that. Um, now we still do all those things because they're all still good articles and good posts, mm-hmm. but we definitely make a conscious effort to talk about the things that are, would be customers or prospects mm-hmm. or the questions that they're struggling with. How should I think about growing a customer support team? We're happy to help you think about that. And at the end of the post, we might, we might drop a little hint that, by the way, if you're really thinking this way, you might want to try Intercom. Yeah. And uh, we've always kind of believed in that sort of subtle blend of like, 
of like call to action yeah. combined with a, a post that's actually standalone valuable. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think most SaaS startups, um, like either they don't get to product market fit and a million ARR at all, but if, if they are successful in getting there, then I think most of them don't cross the 10 million ARR um, let's say threshold because they are early marketing channels. They they just exhaust them. They can get they can get to a few million in, in ARR, and then there is just no keyword traffic left anymore. Or just there, it just gets increasingly expensive and competitive. Um, what do you think? What is what are some of the reasons why Intercom is one of those few breakout companies that? didn't like decelerate, but really moved to, I don't know, you, I think you announced 50 million in ARR. Is that just because the market is so much bigger, or did you do so much, layer so much more marketing um, on top? Or, I don't know if you can talk a bit about that. Yeah. Um, I think, like, on your first point, I think there's a lot of truth there. Like, the, in general, SEM is not a great way to grow, to, uh, grow a B2B SaaS app, because the, the search depth and search volume just isn't there. And, uh, and it's so competitive that you end up, like, if you want to bid on, say, the word, like, CRM, you're paying, like, $65 a mm -hmm. click or something. Like, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's very, very hard to do that successfully. So you have to play a different game. That's not to say SEM is, is not a, a good strategy, but it's, it's a limited strategy, and it's certainly not going to, you know, it, it'll get you here, but it won't get you there. If you know what I mean? You might get to, like, $5 million or whatever. You'll get a bid at some stage. I think the, the, the things that are important uh, that people don't think about enough, um, one of them is like the value of a brand. Uh, and I think we have spent a long time and a lot of uh, headcount and, and uh, a lot of focus trying to build a brand. Intercom is about making internet business personal. And, uh, and we've, everything we've done, our logo, our name, our posts, our articles, our product, the whole lot is all consistently on that idea. And, uh, and we've you know, we've not changed, you know, like four years ago, customer success was the hot shit. So we should have, like, if we were following mm -hmm. other people's playbooks, they'd be like, pivot the whole fucking company. We're now customer mm -hmm. success. Today, we should now be like an AI-powered company. Like seven years ago, we should have been a gamification company, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think, like, we've, we've seen the value of just being consistent and having one sort of core brand. And I think that has paid back over time. Then to, to the specific, like, why did we, how did we get past this mysterious 10 mm -hmm. number that mm -hmm. seems to, like, make people struggle? Um, this is the whole, like, you know, from zero to one is impossible, from one to 10 yeah. is improbable. Mm -hmm. um, I think, like, the Intercom product is actually, like, we sell to, like, sales teams, support teams, marketing teams. So in some senses, we have, like, triple what most people's market might be. Um, but uh, the more general point I would, I would say is... Uh, you can solve problems that are big or small, right? And, uh, and maybe something like um, maybe something like calculating employee vacation time is a relatively small problem. Mm. It doesn't mean that uh, you know you shouldn't build a SaaS app for it, but it just means the addressable market of that might only be like three or four million dollars when you factor in the competitors and everything else. Um, so you can solve problems, problems that are big or small, and then you can solve problems that are like rare or problems that are common. Mm -hmm. And a rare problem might be something like, uh, like scheduling like a multimedia campaign across billboards and television and everything else, right? It's, like, it's definitely a problem, but it doesn't happen that often. Uh, and I often, whenever I see people who, who, like, who hit these walls, it's, they're usually in the category of a small, rare problem. So something that's actually not a huge issue, and it doesn't actually happen in the business that often. 
such that when they go and they try to charge like you know 100 bucks a month for it, uh, it doesn't it doesn't play well because people, people are like, well, I only I only have this problem in June or July. I don't really mm-hmm. have to, you know. Um, but similarly, the other categories can be risky too, which is like a, a small problem that occurs mm-hmm. frequently mm-hmm. still has a limited amount of value you're going to spend for it. Um, your morning cup of coffee or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and then a big problem that occurs rarely tends to be spiky yeah. purchases, right? Um, so the best SaaS apps, I think, are like yeah. so solving like big problems yeah. that occur all the time. Yeah. And when you think of, say, something like a Slack or a Stripe, you know, you use them all the time, well, whether you know it or not, in the case of Stripe, like, and you're always charging. Um, and they are generally big problems, like, you know, charging money, charging customers is a big problem, like talking to your teammates is a relatively big problem. Yeah. Um, so you kind of want to get into that quadrant. Yeah. And I think if you're there, what you yeah. have is, and then obviously your addressable market. So for us, we sell to internet businesses. Yeah. So if, you're, yeah. if you have a digital record of a customer, you should be using yeah. Intercom. So it's a yeah. big market uh, with a big problem, which is customer communication. Yeah. Uh, that happens all the time. People yeah. talk to their customers every day. And that's, yeah. that's the kind of... Oops, ships. That's that gone. Um, anyway, that's kind yeah. of the, uh, the, yeah. the... Why don't I undermine my own point? But, um, anyway, that, that, that's kind of like the core yeah. idea for me is like, is like have a big market with a big problem that happens yeah. regularly. I think one issue which many startups run into is that, yes, they solve a big problem mm-hmm. for many customers, potential customers, but the customers out there, they, either they don't know that they have a problem or mm-hmm. they, they have the problem, but they just have no idea that there could be a better solution and therefore they're not actively searching yeah. for it, and, and I, I guess what you can do then is to create some kind of more top-of-the-funnel content to, uh, yeah. to uh, like somehow engage with that audience and um, yeah. like eventually um, uh, like t- talk to them and convert them. I don't know, is, is there anything you... No, you, you're to totally yeah. correct. So like, um, basically, like in 2011, talking to your users was one of the hardest and most important things mm. that businesses needed to do. I say hard because the state of the art was you take a SQL export from your database, you import it into like a MailChimp, you send out like a survey monkey thing mm. and you get all that back into your email and then you try and read it there and if customers reply to you directly, you now have to deal with that alongside all the rest of your emails. And it was just a mess. Um, and we had to simultaneously, and because it was a mess, people didn't like doing it, right? It was just, it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, no one's default attitude was, well, we should maybe just talk to the customers about this, right? Mm. Uh, whereas if that's what it should have been, right? Mm. The amount of times I used to see like product managers go, I wonder if we build a calendar, will they? And I'm like, let's talk to the people. Like, that's a much easier approach here. Mm. Um, so we had to like kind of do this marketing that, that combined like a massive investment in spreading awareness of the problem. And then the sort of the, the afterthought was like, oh, and by the way, if you think this is really a problem, and I've just spent 11 paragraphs convincing you that it very well is, uh, you should check out this little tool. This will help you talk to your customers. But I think, like, so the general point there is, like, you have to, like, you have to sell the problem uh, first. There's no point in selling a solution to a problem that people don't know that they have. So if you have to sell, and, and like the best idea is, of course, when you don't have to sell the problem, right? When yeah. people like know, and this is like the whole like vitamin versus painkiller thing, right? Um, but if you have to convince people uh, of a problem, and oftentimes this is where the, the best white space is because because uh, the opportunity is so big because no one's actually looking at it. So like Slack is one example of that. Like people didn't realize they wanted to talk to their colleagues. Yeah. It turns out they did, and now they're worth nine billion yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, I think, you know, you have to spread awareness of the problem uh, first, which means you have a two-tier marketing challenge. Here's a big problem that you're not, here's something you should be doing that you're not, and then if I can convince you of that, then 
here's the only tool in the world that does it. You know? yeah. and, uh, and that's something we had to do a lot early on. Yeah, great. So we have only 40 seconds left, but there is one highly upvoted question coming from the audience. What's the biggest mistake you've made by saying yes? Uh, I was asked to go on stage with Christoph, and then... <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, let me think. Um, I guess you can answer this in loads of different ways. You can talk about like, uh, product or marketing or whatever. Like, um, I think um, early on in Intercom's product life, we, uh, we, you know, a lot of the, the say no stuff has been a kind of reaction to times when we've said yes. Um, I'd say the biggest examples have been uh, decisions that we've made that sounded good. Like I often say, and I'll be very quick, I know we're out of time, um, every decision you make in your company is wrong. Uh, but the question is, on what time horizon? Right? So a decision's either wrong in the short term or wrong in the long term. The stuff that's like right for the short term and long term, they're like no-brainers. And the stuff that's wrong in the short term and wrong in the long term, they're also no-brainers. You just don't do them. So every decision you're going to make is wrong. The, the piece you have to ask yourself is, what time frame am I solving for? So you can hire somebody and it helps with headcount today, but if you know that they're the wrong person in the long term, that's a problem. Sim so like th that would be like a short-term hack or whatever. I think the decisions we've made uh, that have been the biggest mistakes we've made have been when we've gotten that mixed up and we've made a decision based on stuff we know today, not thinking about the long-term implications. For example, how deep will this feature get? Uh, like, how much extra work are we saying yes to by simply agreeing to this one little feature or whatever? Uh, we've written before about different features we've had to kill and why we've killed them, but I think in general the idea of, like, uh, of letting things in without thinking about them in both time horizons has probably been the core of, of most of our mistakes, and I hope that maybe is a more transferable answer than me saying, well, we used to have this feature to let you like favorite users or whatever. Okay, yeah, we don't yeah. anymore, it's gone, and we should have said no to it, but again, it was a time horizon thing. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks very much, Des. And... Thank you.